Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome to HR Work Break. I'm your host, Maddie Collins, editor of HR Daily Advisor. HR Work Break takes a quick but close look at everything human resources. For any HR professional, it's a must listen. I hope you learned something new, take some advice to heart, or simply stay abreast today's trending topics. Now it's time for a work break. Welcome to HR Work Break and happy Friday. Joined by John Godfrey, Director of Leveling Up at Legal in General. Legal in General is a UK-based financial service group and global investor. John and his team seek to improve the lives of their customers, build a better society for the long term, and create value for their shareholders. John, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, hello. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, of course. So Legal in General recently released a series of studies on the United States gig economy. And overall, the research suggests that freelance work is here to stay with a whopping 69% of respondents seeing themselves working in the gig economy for the foreseeable future, which is just such a crazy thing to kind of think about. So the first question I wanted to kind of pick your brain about was what major factors draw people toward the gig economy? Well, there are several different factors, Maddie, but the big ones that came through in the survey were, I think, one kind of cultural factor, which is about 40% of the people we asked said that they they were reluctant to work in a traditional corporate setting. So they preferred the ethos of having more flexibility, having more time, uh, working when they wanted to, fitting things around family and all of those kind of lifestyle issues and cultural issues. And then there was another part of the respondent group who had worked out that they could, in fact, earn more money for themselves by working in the gig economy. And that, of course, was a big appealing factor, too. That's about 35 percent of them. And the more money you earn, the more positive the difference is. If you are a well-paid gig worker earning more than $100,000 a year, then you're really keen to keep working in the gig economy. Definitely. And so clearly having such an easy, not an easy way, but such a nice lump of income is a huge draw toward freelance work. So what are the major pros and cons of this kind of sector? Yeah, I mean, there's an interesting point here that, you know, we thought quite deeply at the beginning of this process about what was a gig economy worker, because it's potentially a very broad category. On the one hand, you've got people who deliver takeaway meals and people who drive Ubers and things like that. And the other end, you've got the sort of best-selling novelist who arguably is a gig worker. So there's a huge range of different people in there. But if you're looking for what are the things that are seen as negative, this is particularly for the lower paid gig workers, I think. It's a lack of access to things like health insurance and things like life insurance. So some of the benefits that traditionally you're more likely to get if you work in a traditional employment structure. And so people do miss those things especially if you're not right at the peak of the gig economy earning pyramid. One of the statistics in the study said 31% of gig workers are actually uninsured. So that sort of benefit could draw a lot of freelance workers to a more traditional role. Do you think there are any other factors that could draw people back into that? Well, I think the sort of insurance that we provide as a company, which tends to be life cover, uh, that's part of it. I think in the US, the health cover piece is probably bigger. And I think the statistics from our survey would bear that out. That is the single most important thing. Now, against that, there are other things, for example, which are positive, such as childcare. If you're trying to build your working life around a set of commitments, either to provide care for children or indeed for older members of the family or people with needs that you need to kind of structure your life around, then, of course, 
that argues in favour of the gig economy. So there are very definitely pros and cons around this. Right. From the survey, did you see any particular industries that had a larger population of gig workers or could potentially gain more gig workers in the coming years? We just did a flash report as part of this survey. I mean, the survey itself consists of a number of quite in-depth reports, but we did a, a special on what's happening in technology because clearly there are layoffs taking place among the traditionally employed tech workers. These are data managers and programmers and people who do those types of jobs. And uh, we see there being quite a lot of growth potentially in people moving to gig work as the regular full-time corporate jobs become a little harder to get. So we see quite a lot of that happening. And this is disproportionately, uh, I think, younger gig workers, and it is also somewhat better paid gig workers. So almost the kind of demographics of the gig working economy are changing a bit, and tech is a real driver in that. I mean, an interesting thing which we also looked, which is a key driver, is I think what happened in COVID. And what we saw was people got used to working remotely, working from home, and that might have been a push towards more gig type working. And we also saw in a different piece of work we did, actually, we love looking at numbers and trying to interpret trends. The other piece of work was how many people were moving where they lived as a result, really, of COVID and deciding they didn't have to live where they'd always lived. So you get younger people moving, wanting to, to live more in cities, and older people generally being happy to live further from cities where they could get more space. So that's another driver in this quite complex equation about how big the gig economy is going to be. Right. And bringing it back to the tech sector and recent layoffs there from like Google and Meta and Twitter, how do you think that's going to affect gig work? Do you think it's going to become more challenging or more common overall? The suspicion is that it's going to become more common because quite apart from anything else, you have people leaving the regular corporate workforce. You still have a big demand for the data jobs, the programming jobs, the tech jobs. We think more of those will be done on a sort of subcontracted gig type basis. Then, of course, all these things tend to be cyclical over time. So as demand goes up for that kind of job, you may well see the big companies wanting to hire again or having more demand for workers in that space and workers saying, well, you know, I've got used to working remotely in my own time more flexibly and I'd like to carry on that way. So I think this is a net positive for gig working, both as a proportion of the total workforce, but also probably as an absolute number over a bit of time. And you had mentioned how the pandemic made people more used to working at home and having more flexibility. Because that's driven a lot of people toward freelance work, do you think that's going to bleed into the benefits that traditional positions offer? Well, I think it creates some challenges, no doubt about that. What we are seeing, I think, in the US and in some other places, is a move towards making gig work a little bit more like regular full-time corporate employment, if you like. So, you know, recognition of the status of gig economy workers as employees is something that's happening. And I think that's happening in the, in the US with some legislative change. But there's also some challenges which haven't been addressed yet, which is how, for example, do you create better systems or devices or methodologies which enable people to buy better priced insurance and to have some of the opportunities that exist for full-time corporate employees? We did some work here in the UK a few years ago on this. There was a very clever guy called Matthew Taylor, who was commissioned by Downing Street to write a report on this. And he came up with some really good structural ideas about making these types of things more accessible for gig workers. 
And I think that's a template or one alternative model for how this can be done in other places. So I think something which enables a gig worker to put a part of their income aside for financial security, if it's easy to do and it works and it's affordable, would be a great step forward. And I think that's where private policy thinking is probably going to lead us. Right, definitely. So one of the other statistics that stood out to me in your study was that 65% of workers are worried about job stability and the predictability of their income. So how do you think gig work has impacted today's current labor market as kind of either a supplement to traditional work or an alternative in that regard? I mean, increasingly, I think it can be a bit of both. What we're seeing is for all the reasons we've talked about, cultural reasons, financial reasons, family-related reasons requiring flexibility, we're seeing a shift gradually towards more gig working. But I suspect at a time of things like job insecurity, things like cost of living issues, things like affordability of property, we will probably see a growth in gig work as uh, something that people do in addition to their normal work. And I think this is something we haven't really gone into in depth in the survey, but it's a sort of intuitive point. There is a a shift of mindset in probably those who are not yet middle-aged, shall we say, whereby, you know, work is a series of projects and they can be more flexible about what they want to take on and how they want to spend their time. And it's quite different from somebody of, of, for example, my age, and, you know, I'm almost 60 now. You know, I've been brought up all my life to think that there is effectively one way of working, and that's to have a pretty continuous job with a very kind of tight structure around it. So I think there's a cultural change as well, which is encouraging gig working. The balance that we need to strike is to let that cultural change happen while still addressing people's concerns about things like insurance and healthcare and, you know, the worries that people have in the margin about how long is this going to go on for for me? You know, am I worried about my future prospects or my family's future prospects? Right. As a, um, like a younger person, I've realized that I participate in gig work as well. I referee in the spring and the fall, and it didn't even occur to me that was technically considered gig work until, you know, I had to file my taxes. And I was like, oh, like, this has really recontextualized things for me, you know? (laughs) The gig workers that we looked at were typically those who derived the larger part of their income from gig work. So it was those who were I think 60% or or more of their income came from gig work rather than those who who had 90% in the company and 10% on the side delivering meals in the evening or whatever it may be. But yeah, I mean, increasingly people do think that way. I'm I'm sure that's right. So your refereeing job sounds very interesting, but having that kind of job going on on the side, uh, I don't think is hugely unusual nowadays. Yeah. And from the studies that you guys conducted, I know that you mentioned that it's usually the younger generation, like under 30. Are there any industries that kind of are more heavily gig worker based? Well, again, it is the tech sector and to some extent the hospitality sector and transportation. So you you see quite a lot of people working in driving, in delivery, in bar work, waitering and those types of occupations. And then at the other end, it is this tech piece, which is particularly large. But there's a huge variety of things under the broad, broad umbrella of gig work. You know, we we struggled at the beginning. Is a farmer a gig worker? Yeah. Or is the farmer just someone who has their own business? Where does the boundary lie? It's all very kind of flexible. And we've tried to put some definitions around it. But, you know, people work in an almost infinite variety of ways nowadays. Work itself is kind of a nebulous concept. It's hard to pin down and understand just because everyone approaches it so differently. 
I actually have one final question for you, unless there's anything you would like to go over that you haven't discussed yet. The one thing I would sort of put into the mix here, which is clearly important, again, about this sort of differential in age. I mean, you may see people who pick up gig work because maybe they've been laid off from a corporate job in middle age or, or beyond, and it's not so much of a conscious choice. And there is always a, an element in the equation here about how do I ensure that my pension is properly served if I'm doing that, because I may now kind of in middle age be starting to think quite hard about my pension. So there's that piece as well as the health piece and obviously the insurance piece. So I think the generational sort of breakdown of how gig work happens is quite an important piece of this. So that's worth a further study, I would say. Yeah, we had discussed how like in America, especially healthcare is a huge incentive to draw people toward more traditional roles, offering 401ks and child support, like you had mentioned, that's a huge factor there, especially as yeah. people reach later ages in their life. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're quite fortunate in the UK in that, you know, we don't have the same health system. That's less of a concern, but the pension piece is still a concern. The various bits of insurance cover that you might get through ordinary corporate type of job are important. But all of that almost fades away. If you're making a transatlantic comparison, gig working is a much more prevalent feature in the US. I mean, it, it's like 30% of the workforce compared with a little bit over 5% of the workforce here. You know, you, you kind of question what, why is that difference when in the UK we don't have that challenge of healthcare? Well, I think you go back again to culture and, you know, there may just be something about the US mindset <laughs> that makes people you know, more entrepreneurial, more keen to go out and experiment, more keen to be self-sufficient. This is kind of sort of almost more rugged spirit in there somewhere. There's no scientific basis for that. I'm just trying to extrapolate from why these numbers are so different across the Atlantic. No, you're totally right. Like just on um, perusing social media, you see a lot of people finding ways to monetize things that they're passionate about, kind of like mm. how you could consider a best-selling author, a freelance worker, or someone who runs an Etsy store to sell earrings or paintings the same way. Yeah. Yeah. So to close out these interviews, my favorite question to ask my guests is, what are you looking forward to this weekend? I have a great weekend coming up because um, I'm a very keen skier. On Sunday, my wife and I are flying down to Austria to have oh a week on ski slopes. I'm looking forward to the end of the week, to be honest. I'm so <laughs> jealous. I noticed the skis in the background of your video, yeah. and I can't even imagine what European skiing is like, because I'm used to that uh, northeastern ice crunch. <laughs> yeah, this is my big annual treat coming up, so I'm looking forward to the weekend. That's awesome. I hope you and your wife have so much fun in Austria. I know we will. And John, thank you so much for joining me again today. This was a really cool study to get to dissect with you. Oh, thanks, Maddie. I, I would recommend, you know, anybody get into this study, dig into the numbers because there's a lot of data there, uh, which I hope your viewers and listeners will find interesting. Thank you. I hope so too. Again, I'm Maddie Collins and thank you for listening. Join us next Friday or whenever you need a work break.